I was standing back there during worship, <clears throat> and the whole time I thought, I wonder if I'm going to get through this message without crying. I can't even get started. Lord, right now we just welcome your presence into this place. <clears throat> Lord, we just want your presence. If there's one thing, if there's one thing that I would love to see by the time I'm done speaking, it is for every person in this room to have encountered your physical, tangible presence in this place. Even this afternoon, I was standing in, or I was in the bedroom putting some notes together for this, and I had, to, I had to go tell somebody. I was so excited about something I felt the Lord said, and so I ran out into the kitchen. I grabbed Katie, and I told him, we're both standing there just crying. And I've just been, you know, my goal tonight was just to speak on the presence of God. <clears throat> and it's been a little more overwhelming than I had anticipated, maybe. Sometimes I, get, I like to just come up and kind of speak, and, you know, I, I love to teach, but I really, I've just felt an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. You know, regarding his presence, um, we know that he's omnipresent. We know that he's everywhere. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Psalm 139, 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Right, there's nowhere you can go that the Lord isn't there in terms of his omnipresence. He's everywhere. And depending on your perception of him, that's either a terrifying reality or a really comforting, beautiful reality. If I'm, if I'm scared of him, if I have an unhealthy fear of him and I think he's out to get me, that he's looking for an opportunity to punish me, then his omnipresence is actually a terrifying reality for me. But if I am aware, if I'm fully aware of his heart, of his nature, of his character, that he's not out to get me, but he's out to love me, and then I cherish the fact that his omni, of his omnipresence. I cherish the knowledge that no matter where I go, he's there. We know he's omnipresent. There's also uh, there's an inner presence of the Lord. He's omnipresent, but there's also an inner presence. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? In Romans 8, 11. But if it is the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, who dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And if you are somebody who's also filled with the Holy Spirit, then the statement I'm about to make is equally as applicable to you. So if this sounds like an arrogant thing I'm about to say, you can all say this too, it's fine. But the reason I know that the Holy Spirit is present here today is because I'm here. 
And when I go home, the reason I know that the Holy Spirit dwells in my home is because I'm there. And when I go to the grocery store and I go to Walmart, I know the Holy Spirit's there because I'm there. And he dwells in me and he goes where I go and I bring him with me. We're carriers of his presence. That he, there's an inner, an inner dwelling of his presence within us. And but what I want to talk about today primarily is his manifest presence. The physical, tangible, manifest presence of God. Uh, in Genesis 3.8, it paints this picture of, of the Lord physically coming and walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, right? He's walking through the garden. And, well, in that instance, he wasn't walking with them because they were hiding, but he was there and he was looking for them. Um, and, you know, one of the things about shame and religion is that shame and religion does a fantastic job of convincing you that you're only worthy of beholding his presence upon the basis of your behavior. And I, I thought about this example. So if you don't know Dr. Paxton, he's a, he's a chiropractor. How do you imagine he would respond to me if I came up to him after this message and I was like, Doc, my back has been killing me. Um, but here's the thing. I'm going to go home for the end of week, next week or so. I'm going to try to get it sorted out. And if I get my back together and I get it you know, to where I'm not hurting, I'm going to come see you at your office. And he'd probably want to smack me in the head and say, hey, stupid, that's kind of what I do. Come in first thing tomorrow and we'll see what's going on, right? And it sounds stupid to say it like that, but I wonder how often we, we don't approach the Lord on the basis of feeling like we're not welcome or we're not accepted by him on the basis of our behavior. Um, in Exodus 33, 14, there's this interaction with Moses and the Lord where Moses tells him, he tells the Lord, he said, unless you go with me, I will not, we won't go. I will not move from here unless I know, unless you promise me that you will go where we're going and that you'll be with me, right? And this is, he is re referencing the Lord's manifest presence, right? You can't go anywhere away from his omnipresence. You can't, you can't get away from that. But what Moses is talking about is your manifest presence, Unless your manifest presence moves from this place, I'm not moving. And if you go, then, then I'll go. But if you won't go, then neither will I. And the thing is, is you can be in the same room as somebody and not interact with them. There are people in this room that I, I'll leave here tonight not having spoken to all of you. I know that. You can be in the same room as somebody and not know that they're there. I've heard this analogy. Let's say that there's a billionaire in this room right now. Okay, there's a billionaire in this room. And you could be in the same room as a billionaire and not know it very easily. You could easily be in the same room as somebody. One of you could be a billionaire and, and none of us have any idea. We could be completely just oblivious to your, to your existence. But uh, if there was a billionaire in this room, one thing they could do to kind of make their presence known is they could get up and a billionaire could look around the room and say, what are we looking at? I'm, I'm not good at estimates, maybe 100, 120 people in here. They could say, I could probably give everybody in this room a million dollars and not really even be that affected by it. And so 
What's happening is in that scenario, the person who's in that room who you previously did not know was there, they're making their presence known and they're doing something that only they can do. I'm going to give, I'm going to wait a minute just in case we have any billionaires in here. <laughs> going once, going twice, no, okay. And that's what's so so wild about the Lord is that you can actually be in the same room as the Lord and not be aware of his presence. You can be in the same, in the same place where he's physically, tangibly manifesting his presence and you could have no idea. But I love that when he does, when his presence is in the room, he's doing things that only he can do. In the same way that only a billionaire could, could come in here and say, I could give everybody a million dollars and not even think twice about it. See, the Lord could, he could get up in a room and say, you know, well, what is, it, what is it that you cannot do for yourself? What is it that you can't do for yourself that the Lord can? Because when he comes into a room, that's actually what he's looking for. He's looking for opportunities to say, hey, here I am. He's not, right, he, he's not waiting for, for us to say, hey, why don't you get your crap together? And then when you get, when you get yourself sorted out, then come see me. No, he's saying, hey, hey, the stuff that you've got going on, I'd actually love to help you. Wh- whatever it is, is it addiction? Is it other cycles and patterns of sin? I don't have the ability to free myself from that, but I know that when I'm in the same room as the Lord, there are things that he can do that only he can do. Um. I'm going to be honest, I don't know how to gauge time with this message. I have no idea what, what to expect, what to think of this. Um, uh, I'll briefly, I'll give you kind of the, the Cliff Notes version of sort of my introduction to the, the tangible manifest presence of God. Um, you guys, uh, many of you have probably heard of Grace Center Church in Franklin, um, very good friends of ours. Um, a friend of mine in 2012... 11 years ago, sort of tricked me into going there. I'd never been to a charismatic church. Um, I thought she went to uh, a more, um, a a less charismatic church, and she didn't tell me that she had changed churches, and she was like, hey, you want to come to church with me? I was like, I've been to your church, and she didn't tell me it was a a new church, and so I went, uh, and it was Grace Center, and Heidi Baker was there speaking, and if you know who that is, it was weird. For, For somebody who'd never been in a charismatic setting, it was weird. I didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. I didn't know why she, she kept doing that, and I didn't know, you know. She kept sputtering these, these words I couldn't understand. It wasn't English. I didn't know, you know. And so I, I left there thinking, well, that was weird. I'm probably, I'm probably not going to go back there. Um, uh, but something weird happened where it was like I was offended by my experience, but at the same time there was nothing else in the world I could think of except how do I get more of that? And it was like the seed was planted in me, where, and I was, in, I was about to enter into my senior year in college, Covenant College up there in the mountain. And, um, and you know, I had, this, I had this weird experience, and the seed was planted in me that just grew, and it grew, and it grew. And for the first, I don't know if it was weeks or months of that first, that fall semester of my senior year, I couldn't think, I couldn't really think about anything other than the Lord. And as somebody who grew up in church, I, even having grown up in church, I didn't have a concept or I didn't have any way to even articulate what was happening in me. 
I had two friends who could help me. One was the, the one who brought me to the Grace Center. Um, and the other one is Noah's cousin, Judah. Some of you have met Judah. He and I go way back to, and I was calling Judah every day on the phone saying, hey, um, what's happening to me? Because I didn't know. I had no idea what was happening. And what I was experiencing was every night, I wish I had, had journaled and documented this season because I, I couldn't tell you if it was weeks or months. I don't really know. But day after day after day, you know, my friends would, you know, they'd go out and it's college, so they'd go out and, well, it was Covenant College, so, you know, we weren't really partying, but um, <laughs> go out and go bowling or whatever Christian kids do and, you know, go out to eat. And night after night after night, my friends would be doing something fun, and I knew that I couldn't go anywhere because there was something drawing me to my bedroom. And I would go night after night, and I would lay down face, full, face down on the floor, and the presence of the Lord would just fill the room. To the point it felt like it felt like the Holy Spirit was coming and sitting on top of me, introducing himself. It was like for the first time. And I, to this day, I don't know how to articulate that level of, of manifest presence. And I felt the presence frequently. And if you watch me, I play the drums most of the time, but I was sitting back in here, standing back in the um, back there tonight during worship. And if you'd watch me, you'd see, you'd see you know, my legs get shaken when I'm in the presence of when I'm in the presence of the Lord, my leg shakes. And I don't know. It's weird. I don't understand it, but that's what happens to me every time. Um, but anyways, I, you know, I'm I'm encountering the the physical, tangible, manifest presence of the Holy Spirit filling my bedroom, and you know, it was it was it was. I wish I could articulate what that was like. Anyways, it was it was wild. But that was my intro, sort of my introduction to the Holy Spirit, saying, hey, nice to meet you, um, Brian, uh, I'm the Holy Spirit, and um, I'm weird, and uh, you'll get to know me, you'll know I'm good, I'm safe, but I do weird things sometimes, but you'll, you'll be okay with that in, in time, um, but um, I'm going to spend some time talking uh, through some Old Testament stories and I'm going to talk about two guys that um, you may recognize their names. I'm not sure you've ever heard anybody preach on them. If you know, if you have, maybe it, it won't be much. Um, but uh, just some really, really interesting stories that have sort of captured my attention. And and watching watching these men respond to the presence of God is really powerful. So I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a bunch of reading. I'm gonna do some paraphrasing. I'm gonna do some storytelling. Um, starting in so I'll, let me paraphrase a little bit in First Samuel. First Samuel, there's this inst- instance where the Israelites go to go to battle with the Philistines and they lose, and the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, they capture the Ark of the Covenant and they have it for seven months, and for seven months it doesn't go well for them. They bring it into the, the temple of their, their idol, Dagon, Dagon, I don't know how you say that. And so they've got this great big statue in, in this temple, and they put the ark in there with it. And, you know, the next day they go up, and th- their idol has fallen over. And so they think, well, that's weird. So they pick it up, and the next day they go, and the hands and the head have been just severed. And so they're like, I wonder if we should get this box out of here, maybe? And so they bring it to different cities, and everywhere they go in Philist- in um Everywhere the Philistines bring it into their cities, uh, people people are getting tumors, and it's just like it's just wreaking havoc on on them, and they don't know what to do, and so they they think, well, we should probably get rid of this this box 
right? They probably don't really know what exactly they're dealing with, with the Ark of the Covenant, but um, they think, we'll, we'll send this box back to Israel. And so they do, and they send with it five golden mice and five golden tumors. I was thinking, I would love to have been the, the craftsman in, in uh, you know, the Philistines, and they're like, hey, we've got a new project for you. And we need some gold work done. And he's thinking, what do we need? A couple little Dagons, a couple of cows, a couple of cats. And they're like, no, we need tumors. <laughs> Could you make some gold tumors and some gold mice? That would be great. And so they, they do that, and they send, they send it back, as they call it a guilt offering, and they send the ark back to Israel. And uh, it ends up in the, um, in the house of a guy named Abinadab, okay, for 20 years. Abinadab hosts the presence of God, right? The Ark of the Covenant in his house. And so let's jump forward to 2 Samuel. Okay, 2 Samuel. Right now, uh, we've, we've gone forward 20 years, and David, in this story, David is getting the, getting the Ark of the Covenant from Abinadab's house, where it's been for 20 years, and he wants to move it to Jerusalem because he's pre- prepared a place for it, and he wants that to be kind of the center of, of what they're doing as a nation, right? So he wants, he's built a tent, and he wants the, the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God to dwell right there in the midst of them. So I'm going to start reading. This is 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 11. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which was called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart, with the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all of the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put, put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there be, beside the Ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? In other words, how were we supposed to get this to Jerusalem? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. I'm going to stop there. Okay. Um... First of all, how were they transporting the ark from Abinadab's house to Jerusalem? It says they put it on a new cart, okay? Now, I'm sure this wasn't any old cart, all right? I'm sure this thing was primo, all right? Top of the line, wood and everything. Uh, My guess is it was probably constructed for this purpose, right? It was a new cart. Um, And so, um, and I think... You know, you could look at it and say, well, they put it on a new cart. Maybe, you know, that points to a certain level of reverence that they had for, for the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. Um, I think they, David obviously knew how incredibly important this was. But there was still a missing aspect of knowing how to steward this thing. And so there's a problem is that Moses, or the Lord had given Moses really specific instructions on how to, on how to move the Ark. Um, and so, uh, 
the, the Lord had given Moses instructions on who was allowed, how the ark was allowed to be moved and who was allowed to carry it, okay? It was a, you know, it was a wooden box. It was covered in gold, two cherubim on top, four golden hoops on the corners for these long wooden poles also covered in gold to go through. To go through. And it was to be carried by Levitical priests. Um, uh, and, so, and so you might wonder, uh, where the Lord was really specific in his instructions to Moses on how this thing was to be carried. I wonder where they got the idea to move this thing on a new cart. And so if you go back 20 years, the ark had been captured by the Philistines, and when they decided to return it to Israel, here's how they did it. This is 1 Samuel 6, verses 7 and 8. This is the Philistines. Now then, take the cart, or take and prepare a new cart with two milk cows, uh, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put in it, uh, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. So, twenty years ago, we see the Philistines moving the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, on a new cart. 20 years later, David wants to move it. And that, how do you think that conversation went? So, hey, Benadab, uh, thanks for hosting this thing. Um, we're ready in Jerusalem. So next Tuesday, I'm going to come and we're going to grab this thing. I've got 30,000 men. It'll be great. We're going to grab it. Um, um, how, how have we seen this thing moved before? Oh, right. The Philistines sent it back in a new cart. Load it up. Hey, have a new cart built. Not just any you know, old cart. Have a new one built, and we'll, we'll put it on the cart, and we'll move it like that. And it doesn't go well. And, you know, when I consider that, what I think is, you know, don't ever be surprised when the church looks to the world to adopt their methods their approaches, their value systems, their metrics for success. Don't ever be surprised when we see the church look to the world for those things and it doesn't produce kingdom results. They don't be surprised when you see church leaders who are developing their methodology based on worldly values and worldly approaches to spiritual matters and wondering why people's lives aren't being changed and transformed the way the Bible says they can be. Because our lives are being meant to be marked by radical transformation from the power of the gospel. We are meant to be marked by peace and wisdom and power and freedom from the dominion of sin. These are the things that our lives are meant to be marked by. But we've got to remember that kingdom results require a kingdom approach. And that if we're not taking a kingdom approach, don't be surprised if we're not getting kingdom results in our lives. You know, even here, we talk about success all the time as leadership. And we don't define success by, I, I don't define success as a, as a church by how many people are here tonight. But what I'm looking at is, I'm looking at the people I, that are here, and I'm defining success by who are you guys becoming? What can we do to lead you guys into the, full, the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of identity? 
to me, that's success. It's who are the people, the people that are here, who are you becoming, and did you have an opportunity to encounter the tangible presence of God when you came here? To me, that's success. Um, so anyways, the ox stumbles, right? Let's go back into the story. They're transporting this ark, the Ark of the Covenant, and the ox stumbles, and Uzzah reaches out to prevent it from falling over and immediately dies, immediately. He touches the ark, boom, he drops dead right then and there. Uh, let me see, have you, have you heard this story, the story of Uzzah touching the cart, he dies? Okay, now, I don't know if this is just me, I've always read this story, and I've always heard this story with kind of an underlying tone that Uzzah was this ignorant fool, and it's like, have you, is there like a, like a movie or TV show that you've seen a bunch of times, you know how it's going to go, but still you're watching it. It's like, don't go in there, don't go in there. Oh, you went in there. It's like, you know what's going to happen. It's like every time I read this story, I'm like, I'm like the ox is going to stumble. Don't touch it, don't touch it. Boom, he touches it. I'm like, you don't, like, Uzzah, you don't touch the ark, man. That's like, you didn't pay attention in Torah school, bro. Like, you don't touch the ark. I've, that's always been the tone, like, you ignorant fool. You don't, man, you really botched it, huh? That's always, always how I've thought about it. Well, the verses I, I first read in First Sam, uh, in Second Samuel, um, it actually lists Uzzah, the guy who touched the ark and died, is Abinadab's son. And Abinadab, if you recall, is the guy who hosted the ark in his house for twenty years. And so Uzzah is the son of Abinadab. Uzzah, I don't know how old he would have been, but it's fair to say that he had been around the Ark of the Covenant for the past 20 years, okay? I think he would have been really familiar with the Ark. I think he probably would have known. Obviously, he went 20 years without touching it because here he is. And so, and so I've, I've, I've read the story and I thought, I don't, I don't really understand what's going on here. But I wonder, I wonder if he actually knew full well the consequences of touching the ark. You see, this would have happened really quickly, right? They're walking along, they're, they're going by, and all of a sudden the ox stumbles, the cart tips, and boom, he reaches out. It was a split-second reactionary decision he made to reach out and touch the ark. And I wonder if that, in that split second, often we think that it's revealing his ignorance and his foolishness. Right? That's often kind of the underlying tone. But I can't help but wonder if he reached out and he touched the ark to steady it. And I can't help but wonder if having lived in the presence of God for the past 20 years, maybe he didn't develop such a love and reverence for the presence of God. <sighs> what if he had developed such a love and reverence for the presence of God that he was willing to die in his presence and to see the ark fall to the ground? And we know the ark was going to Jerusalem, right? David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem because he wanted that to be at the center of what Israel was doing, of who they were as a nation. It was, everything was going to be centered around the presence of God. I just can't help but wonder if Uzzah had developed such a value for what it meant to live in and to host the presence of God that he would actually rather die in the presence of God than to see the ark fall to the ground and risk the possibility of everybody else in Israel not getting to experience what he had experienced which is to live a life centered around the presence of God. What, you know, was he an ignorant fool? Maybe. Was he a hero? 
Was he a man of outstanding character and integrity who valued the presence of God above his own life? I think that's likely. And so, and so that happens midway journey, midway on this quest. And so David is, he's angry and he's afraid. And so he's thinking, well, what are we going to do? And so they look over and there's a house and there's this guy, you know, who lives there with his family. Now this is Obed-Edom's house. Now you've got to consider this story from his perspective. I imagine 30,000 men, that procession, I, it probably would have taken, I don't know how many hours, but he probably had been watching these these men, these Israelites walking all day long, right? The, the presidential motorcade is going by. And, you know, I imagine he's sitting there and he's eating dinner with his family. And, and finally, he recognizes King David. And he grabs his family and says, oh, guys, look, there's the king. And, oh, look, there's the ark. We've waited all day to see this. And they're watching it go by. And all of a sudden, the cart stumbles and Uzzah reaches out and touches it and he drops dead. And Obed-Edom with his kids and his wife was like, what? <laughs> and so he's like, all right, uh, kids, don't just get away, get away from the window for a second. And he's sitting there, he's watching. He and his wife are watching. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, these men are talking and they're like angry and confused. And King David, he starts kind of pointing over to his house. And all of a sudden he's like, he's like turn, turn the lights on. <laughs> right? Like nobody's home. And he's sitting there. He's kind of waiting, and all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and he opens it up. He's like, hello, hey, hi. And there's a guy at the door, and he's like, hey, um, I'm Brad. I'm with the, um, the Royal Guard, and we've been, um, well, you know, we've been transporting uh, the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and <laughs> there's, there's been a bit of an incident. And so, um, his king, the magic, or, you know, uh, the king, his majesty, has uh, is requested that we leave the ark um, at your house until we kind of figure out what the next uh, step looks like for us. And Obed-Edom is like, cool, 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 cool. It's like, you know, it's so weird. My neighbor was just saying how much he would love to have the ark <laughs> in his house. So go give him a ring, and uh, I'm sure he's home. Obed-Edom doesn't know what's going on. All he knows is that some dude just touched it, this thing and died. And he's like, he's like, I, you know, and, you know, Brad with the Royal Guard is like, actually, sorry if I wasn't clear. The king isn't asking if you want it. He's asking which room you want us to put it in. So is, is the living room, the dining room, you know, where would you like this thing? And so they bring it in and they plop it in, in this dude's house, Obed-Edom. And for three months, for three months, it says that he and his family and everything that belongs to them is blessed it is blessed, and I imagine it is blessed beyond anything they could ever comprehend because they hosted the presence of God for three months. And so three months go by, and all of a sudden, here comes Brad with the royal guard, and he's like, hey, good news. Um, we've, uh, David's gone back, and we've, um, you know, we've read the Torah again. It turns out <laughs> we, we made a few mistakes and a few miscalculations in our, in our quest there. And so we figured out actually who can carry the ark, and it's not a cart with oxen. And so uh, next Friday we'll be by, and we'll come and grab it, and we'll, be, you know, we'll get out of your hair. And Obed-Edom is like, could it, like, could it stay? Could you give me another week? Could you give me another month? I don't. 
I've, we've kind of grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle around here. Um, everything we have is blessed financially, you know, our crops, our, our physical health, our mental and emotional health, like everything is thriving. And so what's happening is his life looks better than he ever dreamt it could. And now here comes Brad and he's like, hey, we're going to take this thing. And we're going to move it back onto Jerusalem. And so um, I'm going to pick up this story but in 1 Chronicles 15, okay? And, you know, it says that, it says that David heard, word, word had spread, and word had actually gotten back to David on how, um, how blessed this family was, okay? Imagine being so blessed that the king or the president of a nation hears about it. That was this guy's experience, okay? And so I'm going to read this. <clears throat> this is in 1 Chronicles 15, and I'll read some, and I'll do some paraphrasing, um, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said uh, that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the Levites. And uh, it lists a bunch of guys with 120 of his brothers and this guy and 200 of his brothers. And it goes on, lists a bunch of guys and all their brothers. And David says to, to a few of them, he says, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourself, you and your brothers, so that you may bring the ark of the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. See, David took those three months and he actually went and he, he learned. He actually went back and consulted the Torah. And he, I imagine he consulted the, the priests and the prophets and say, hey, how can we actually, how can we get this thing, get this thing here? Um, because again, you, it, you're not going to get kingdom, you won't get kingdom results unless you have a kingdom, sorry, you won't get kingdom results unless you have a kingdom approach. If you are not consulting the king, if you are not approaching the king, don't be surprised when you don't have kingdom results. But anyways, he goes and he figures that out. And so um, I'm going to pick up in verse 16. This is First Chronicles 15, verse 16. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers who would play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed, and it lists several guys whose names I can't really pronounce very well, a bunch of, bunch of guys who are musicians, and it lists two gatekeepers. Okay, these guys, gatekeeper, I imagine this is some kind of a security type position, um, escorting uh, the, the ark on its way to Jerusalem. And there's two guys, and wouldn't you know, one of those guys is Obed-Edom. And then it says the singers, and it lists a bunch of guys, um, singers, and uh, among the, the singers and the musicians, uh, people playing harps and lyres, uh, wouldn't you know whose name shows up again is Obed-Edom. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the guy who just hosted and dwelled in the presence of God for three months and experienced the blessing of God, I don't think it's a coincidence that, that he ends up on the team of guys who are escorting this thing from his house to Jerusalem. And I imagine, I imagine you know, when Brad came to say they're collecting the ark, I, I imagine Obed-Edom was like, um, do you need security? Do you need singers? I'm not great, but I'll do it. In other words, hey, 
I understand that you've got to take this thing from my house. Tell me what I have to do and where I have to go to be a part of this. I get that this thing can't stay in my house, but tell me what, in what position do I have to volunteer for to be just near the presence? And see, Obed-Edom, he was extremely blessed, he and his family, for three months. But what I love about the heart of Obed-Edom is that he didn't settle for what the Lord could give him. He wanted the Lord. He didn't settle for, for the physical blessings of the Lord. While that's amazing, he didn't, he didn't stop and say, actually, I've gotten what I could, so, so yeah, I'm good. Take it. No, he... He recognized the beauty of dwelling in living in the presence of the Lord. And his approach was, what do I have to do? Where do I have to go? What instrument do I have to play to just be near the presence of God? And so they do. And he goes with them. And he's, he works security. He works, you know, uh, as, as a worshiper from his house to Jerusalem, and then they get to Jerusalem, and David throws a feast. It is a celebration, and it says that he, that David, it said he gave for every man and, and woman, there was a loaf of bread, and there were raisin cakes, and there were, um, there was meat, and, and it was this massive party. And if you read in First Chronicles 16, during the celebration, during this great feast, David decides that he wants worship happening while this celebration is going on. And so it lists, uh, it lists um, some names of people who were on the worship team during the celebration. Well, if you read the list of names for people who volunteered to worship, guess whose name appears in that list? Again, is Obed-Edom. After the celebration... David, he, he makes this decree. He declares that there is going to be 24-hour worship happening in this tent around the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? 24-hour worship. So there's, he's organizing people in shifts, and they're taking, you know, they've got the rotation. And so um, David, he decides he wants 24-hour worship. Well, guess who gets the first name that appears on the list of people who volunteered to be a, a worshiper, is Obed-Edom. Not only that, but it actually says Obed-Edom and 68 of his brothers. So not only was he so, so desperate to be near the presence of God, that it actually had an effect on his family. That all of a sudden, all of his relatives saw what was happening to him as a result of having hosted the presence of God. And now all of his brothers are saying, hey, could you bring us with you? We don't sing well, but I'll crash some cymbals together if I can just be near, if I can just be near the presence. And I think that this is a shift that we are going to see more and more coming to the church. It's a shift that we're going to see more and more coming to people in the church where there is going to be a desperation in people to just be where God is present. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss that. I don't want to be the person who settles for what the Lord can give me because he can give us a lot. The blessings of the Lord can come in a lot of a lot of different there are a lot of different facets to that. A lot of different ways that He can bless us. 
But what I know for sure is I want to become the person who when I experience the blessing of the Lord that actually draws me to the Lord and I don't settle to become a person who just uses the Lord to get what I can get from him. And I honestly believe that this is something that's coming to the church. We're going to see people who have a desperation to be where the Lord is. The Obed-Edoms are going to, to, to rise up and say, what do I have to do? What position do I have to volunteer for? What instrument do I have to play? Where do I have to be and when do I have to be there? As long as I can just be where the Lord is. I wonder what these guys would think. I wonder what these guys would think about what it's like for us to live in the new covenant having full, unlimited access to the presence of God anywhere, anytime. I wonder, not even those guys, I wonder what Elijah, some of these Old Testament prophets, I wonder what some of these guys would say if they came and they thought, wait, wait, the veil was torn and you have full, unlimited, unhindered access to the presence of God 24 hours a day, anywhere, anytime, and he dwells in you? Right? For, for Old Testament guys, that wasn't a reality ever. And that was one of the significant things about, about uh, John's account of Jesus being baptized is that it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him and remained. And so what these guys, the, the crazy, just radical experiences that these guys had in the Old Testament actually doesn't really hold a candle to what we have access to as being people who are in the New Covenant. Even think about, you know, when, when, the, when the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, when it was in the temple, only the high priest could go in and only once a year. Imagine talking to a, to a high priest that only got to go in once a year and he could say, so you guys just show up at four o'clock and, and the Lord's just there? You don't have to tie a, a rope around your waist like I did in case you die and they have to pull you out. Like you can just, you can just show up and just be in the presence of God wherever, whenever. And I think one of the things that causes us to miss, what causes us to miss this, there's that verse, and I don't remember the reference, but there's that verse that says that we can boldly approach the throne. You familiar? It says that we can boldly approach the throne. Well, when people quote that, they often miss the next two words. It is that we can boldly approach the throne of grace we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can boldly approach him and his presence on the basis of grace. And I think to tie, to tie this into what Noah's been talking about the last two weeks, if you've been here, a lot of times we, we prevent ourselves from ever encountering and engaging and interacting with the presence of God because we've been too busy hanging out on Mount Sinai and we're too worried that our own self-effort hasn't been enough for us to be considered worthy of encountering the Lord. But we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We miss the opportunity so often, I think, when we think that our access to his presence and access to his throne is determined by how successful we've been in our own self-effort. But the more, the more we can climb down from Mount Sinai, 
the more we can cast out that Hagar and Ishmael, the more accustomed we can get to casting out the voices of condemnation, the voices of shame, the voices of religion, the voices of self-effort, the voices that say you're actually not worthy of encountering the presence of God based on your behavior. The more we can cast that out and the higher we can climb on Mount Zion and say, actually, it turns out I'm a son. It turns out I'm righteous. It turns out I have full access to the presence of God. And anything in my life that I previously felt was hindering me from encountering his presence is actually going to get worked out in his presence. I don't know about you guys. I, I want to be the Obed-Edom. I want to be like Obed-Edom. I want to be the guy who says, if the Lord is there, then so am I. I want to be the guy that says, what do I have to do? What position do I have to volunteer for? Where do I have to be to just be near the Lord? I think that, I think that the, the more we settle for what the Lord can give us, the less likely it is that we've actually encountered the true heart of the Father. Because the more I encounter his heart, the more I look upon his face, the more I come into his presence, the more I discover his goodness and his love for me, the more I realize that everything else he does for me is actually just something that he's hoping will draw me back to him. So I am, I'm going to be done. Um, but I do want to open this up for anybody who wants to just spend some time sitting in the presence of God. And I'm going to spend a minute praying. And if we could get uh, either some music or uh, something going, but I'm going to spend some time praying and just inviting the Holy Spirit in. And if you'd like to, the altars are open. If you have to go, we bless you to go. But these altars are open. And um, if you're on the ministry team, feel free to just do your thing. I release you. If you want to prophesy, if you want to pray over people, whatever that looks like. But, um, but I don't want anyone to leave here without at least having extended an opportunity to just, to just be, spend some time and just be in the presence of God. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. Sometimes the best thing in the world is to just be, to just simply exist in the presence of God. Let him love you. Let him reveal himself to you. Let him show you what he's like. Don't let, don't let the voices of shame and condemnation and religion tell you that you can't come up here and encounter the Father based on your behavior. Remember, a kingdom results are going to require a kingdom approach. And so let's approach him as kingdom sons and daughters. Let's approach him as a kingdom family. Let's approach him from Mount Zion and say, actually, we don't stand under the law anymore. We stand under grace. And because of that, I have full access to where I can boldly approach the throne of grace. So I'm going to start praying. And if you want to come up, you're welcome to. If you don't want to, that is your prerogative. You're welcome to leave and I bless you. But Father, 
Right now, I love you. I love you, and I welcome you here in this place. And Lord, I ask that for anybody who wants to encounter your physical, tangible, manifest presence, Lord, that that would be something that is available to every person in this room right now. Lord, every person in this room, Lord, that you would extend that and that there would be, that it would be tangible. Lord, I ask that it would be, that there would be no mistake for anybody in this room, that every single person could leave here saying, I actually encountered the physical, tangible, manifest presence of God. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you. We welcome you in this place.